So Lord, we pray that you would open up our hearts to your word right now. We pray that it would uh, not just be words on a page, but that it would be the breath of God bringing life to our souls and our hearts. And so we pray that you would speak to each and every one of us, God, right now. Help us to uh, glorify you by the attention and the devotion that we give to your word. And so have your way with us, and it is in your name that we pray. Amen. So we're going through the Bible in overview fashion, uh, roughly a book a week. Last week, we wrapped up the Old Testament. So we are now in the New Testament. Um, And so I try not to say it every week just for the sake of not being repetitive, although repetition is how you learn things. Um, But I think it's probably a good point to just sort of back up and remember kind of what we're looking at overall, which is uh, Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings collectively are great uh, additions to what you should be experiencing in your private life. Uh, What happens in a public context in your relationship with the Lord is a wonderful addition to what should be happening privately. It is not a substitute. It's like, you know, vitamin pills and supplemental, whatever, you know, those kinds of things that people get. Uh, I obviously don't know too much about it. But there's all kinds of things that you can get, all kinds of catalogs you can get about things that will supplement your life and your health and your hormones and all that stuff. And that's great, but you got to eat something, right? You don't live on pills. You take pills in addition. And so, uh, so a church service is a lot like that. It's, a gr- it's phenomenal pills. Pills can do wonderful things. But if you're not eating and you're not drinking water, pills are only going to, you know, just stretch you out longer, right? Uh, but there's got to be some substance going in first and foremost. And so as we're looking at the Word on Wednesdays and Sundays, we've got to do it in the context of what's the Lord saying to you? What is the Word of God speaking to your heart on a daily basis? Where are you? How are you being fed by the Word of God daily? And so, um, you know, as, as a church, our goal is to equip people. So we've got Bibles on the back table. If you don't have one, we've got I think, still, uh, Bible reading plans on the back table. They'll take you through the whole Bible in a year. And, and you'll get a comprehensive grasp of what the Word of God says. But then when you finish it up, because it's actually the Word of God, it's not just uh, wisdom literature, it's not just ancient writings, it's actually the words that God has written down for us. So you'll never unpack it all the way. Right? There's the, gospel, the, the Bible is... It's a divinely written book, and it's so simple in one sense that a three-year-old child can completely understand the message of, of the Scripture. And it is so complicated that men have been devoting, men and women have been devoting their lives to studying this book for thousands of years, and we can take all the best writings that they have, and we still come to it fresh, and it hits us right between the eyes. And so, uh, you know, we're here, we're, we're getting ready to sort of shift chapters a little bit, actually, literally. Um, but it's a good time to just stop and say, okay, what is the word? You know, and, and, and understand that we're not here just, uh, just to, you know, sort of get some sort of community benefit or whatever. Although that's very real, we're here to study the word of God. And so with that, we, we take that with a certain sobriety. Um, but we're switching tonight into the New Testament. And tonight, specifically, we're going to do an overview of the book of Matthew. But uh, Matthew is the first of four books that are called the Gospels. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're each a, uh, a telling of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And um, 
And the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written fairly close together, and they are all pretty similar in their outlook. And so sometimes they're called the synoptic gospels, which basically is just a big fancy uh, Greek word that means seen together. It means you read Matthew on his own, that's great. You read Mark on its own, that's great. You read Luke on its own, that's great. But if you read them all together, you're going to get a, a more well-rounded picture of Jesus Christ. And so they're called the synoptic gospels because they're good if you see them together. The gospel of John has just a different, uh, a different flavor. And it's not that John is trying to contradict these guys. It's just John uh, is written as one of the last books of the New Testament. And so it's written as John is becoming an old man. And he says, you know, I was an eyewitness to all these things. And there's a couple of things that I would like to specifically get down in writing before I die so that the church can remember them. And so it just has a little bit of different flavor, um, but it's very much, you know, looking at the same person and character of Jesus Christ. He's just helping us see some fresh insights. Um, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. Uh, and I <clears throat> was very briefly, for all of like two and a half seconds, tempted to try and go through Matthew, Mark, and Luke in one Wednesday night because they're very similar. But I decided that probably wouldn't be the wisest choice. Um, so we're going to cover them. We're gonna, they're each going to get their own week. But they're each so full of just incredible insights that there's really, I don't think, any way you can fully unpack the book of Matthew or Mark or Luke in one week. You really couldn't. You can't do it in a lifetime, really. Um, <clears throat> so with that, the, if you guys like plans and schedules... My tentative train of thought, as of right now, is that we're going to overview Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We'll, we'll keep going through the New Testament like we've been on schedule. But probably what we'll wind up doing is we'll sort of hit a slightly different point of emphasis in Matthew, Mark, and Luke so that we can help, hopefully have a little more time to get a, a fuller picture. So Matthew comes first. And Matthew is... Uh, it's situated that way for a reason. And, and remember... You know, if you've got a Bible, you flip over one page, and you're in the book of Malachi, right? Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, and so with that, you, you got to wonder, okay, we're this new section of our Bible, what's it for? And so Matthew is, is a very specific gospel, and Matthew is writing this book largely to the Jewish people. And he's trying to point out to them, hey, Jesus Christ is actually the fulfillment of the Old Testament, or what the Jewish people would have called, you know, the scriptures. Uh, he's not a replacement, he's a fulfillment. And so, and, I, and it's really important that we understand this concept, because I remember uh, several years ago, I was having a conversation with a Jewish man about Judaism and Christianity. And he said to me, you know, the problem with Christians is you're just cherry-picking whatever you want out of the scriptures. You just took whatever out of the Old Testament you liked and you stuck it in the New Testament and you left out all the parts you didn't like. And so you didn't like the part that said you can't eat pork and so you left it out. You liked the part that said, you know, don't commit adultery and so you left that in. And Christianity really is just uh, picking and choosing what you like and ignoring the rest of it. And that's, that's an important accusation to be aware of because if that man is correct, then... We're, we're tampering with the Word of God. We're saying, well, this is, you know, this doesn't apply to me. And really, we're elevating ourselves to an unhealthy place. We're, we're putting ourselves in the place of God. But, but that's not correct. We're not, as Christians, going back to the Old Testament and saying, okay, here's what I like, here's what I don't like, here's the, the fun parts or the easy parts or the exciting parts. No. 
We're not doing that. And, he, and, here's, and Matthew is specifically, uh, as one of the four Gospels, Matthew's point of emphasis is that, no, that's not what's happening here. So if you're trying to figure out, like, what's the overall theme of Matthew? If you want, like, the summary verse for the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 5 of Matthew, in verse 17. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And this is important for us, because he's, he's saying, I am not changing, I'm not just picking out, okay? I'm actually fulfilling. I'm stepping into human history as the person who is holy enough to actually fulfill every obligation of the law, and because I now have demonstrated the, my righteousness and my power, I have the authority to shift into a new commandment, okay? So he's not, he's not saying, hey, the Old Testament is dead. I mean, we just, as a church, we just spent, you know, six and a half months going through the Old Testament. We don't believe the Old Testament's dead. We're going through it like it actually matters, like it's actually the Word of God, because we don't believe that Jesus replaced it. We believe he fulfilled it. And so the Gospel of Matthew is all about that. It's about Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And so Matthew gives us more references in his book to the Old Testament than any of the other Gospels. And he's trying to set out to demonstrate, almost like a legal argument, no, this person who we refer to as Jesus Christ actually is the Savior of the world. He actually is the fulfillment of everything that the Jewish people have been hoping for. And so that's Matthew's overall concept. But chapter 5, verse 17 is really the central point of the book, and that is that Jesus came to fulfill the law. All right? And so we're going to see tonight, as we're going through it, we're going to sort of look at Matthew's gospel from that perspective. We're going to try and look at Matthew's gospel from the perspective of fulfilling the law and Jesus' role in that. So chapters uh, like 1 through 4 of Matthew, really 1 through the first half of chapter 4, are Jesus' early life, uh, his birth, sort of just the events that fell into place for that. But they're, and we're not going to totally unpack them just for time, but Matthew goes and says, okay, look, here's who Jesus is descended from. But just like the scripture said. He says, hey, by the way, here's where Jesus was born, just like the scripture said. He says, hey, by the way, uh, you know, there's, there's this detail here, just like Scripture said. Um, hey, by the way, you know, Herod, after the wise men had come and left, Herod slaughtered the children of Bethlehem, just like the Scriptures prophesied. Matthew's not laying out this, hey, here's this wise guy who I follow. Matthew's saying, here's a man who came and demonstrated that he's actually a fulfillment. And... Jesus, uh, if you calculate the prophecies that Jesus has fulfilled uh, by his first coming, and, and you take the odds of one man fulfilling those, there's different numbers in, in, in terms of like how impossible it is. Okay, but he filled, fulfilled roughly 300 prophecies from the Old Testament when he came to earth. Now, if you were to take the mathematical odds of one man fulfilling all of these prophecies, some of which are incredibly specific, uh, like which city he'd be born in, right? Was anybody in this room born in Bethlehem, Israel? I didn't think so. Uh, is anybody in this room, there might be a couple people in this room who have some Jewish ancestry in them, but is anybody in this room descended straight through the line of David? Mm, I don't necessarily think so. 
Uh, did anybody grow up in Egypt? So, not, so all of us, that's just three. Uh, we're all out, right? None of us can, can like claim to this. Uh, but Jesus fulfilled over 300 of these. And somebody said that the mathematical odds of that happening would be like covering the entire state of Texas about a foot and a half deep in silver dollars and marking one of them and having a blindfolded person walk out in the middle and pick up the right one. Now, I've never been to Texas, but I hear it's a pretty big state, right? That's a lot of silver dollars. And the odds of one man fulfilling all these prophecies is thereby pretty slim. So he's demonstrating to us, Matthew is retelling, hey, just by the virtue of the fact that Jesus even came at this point in time, in this place, he's already fulfilling prophecy. He's already sort of narrowing the field, right? And so the first couple chapters, we get Jesus' early life. In chapter 5, um, 5, 6, and 7, we get what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's, a, it's, a, it's Jesus giving a teaching that's incredibly, uh, incredibly powerful. It has a ton of application for our lives. But t- specifically, as we're looking at tonight, he gives a couple of things where he's going to demonstrate uh, in context of fulfilling the law. He's saying, you know, listen, when most people are going to try and live up to a standard, here's what happens. If the standard's really high, if somebody's got really high standards, what happens? Sooner or later, there's that point in time which you're like, well, okay, maybe that part wasn't like super important, right? Maybe we could, okay, you know, like, whatever. If, you know, if, if it's, it's not, okay, sorry. This is what happens when you try and look, put together. Uh, you know, you, sooner or later, we kind of have standards and we're like, well... I don't know, you know, nobody's perfect, right? Well, Jesus in this sermon is making a point that actually, if you're going to try and attain righteousness through the Old Testament law, it's not graded on a curve. He's saying, no, actually, let's explain what the Lord means by perfection. He means perfection. And so chapter 5, we, just get, he gets, we get several little pieces. In verse 27, he says, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, that's in the Old Testament. And we could say, yeah, that, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty good basics. That's probably not a good idea. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says, in the eyes of God, if you stare at a woman and you allow sinful thoughts to enter into your heart, that counts as adultery in God's presence. At which point, uh, well, you know, again, None of us could fulfill the prophecies to be Jesus Christ. Uh, if that's the standard of God, none of us are making it. None of us are fulfilling the law of God, right? Uh, chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Now, I've never murdered any of my siblings, right? But I've been, have I been angry at them? Uh, yeah, they're human, and so am I. Uh, they're more human, but uh, no. Uh, but uh, Jesus says, hey, you know what? Yeah, the law says don't murder, but in the, in the eyes of God, anger is like murdering him in your heart. So if any of us have ever been angry, we've broken the law of God. If any of us have ever lusted, we've broken the heart of God. He says in verse uh, 43, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is saying, look, let's talk about righteousness. And Jesus is not 
Jesus does not come onto the scene and try and sweep any of his past under the rug and say, hey, you know what, let's just, uh, let's, let's, look for, let's move forward here, right? I mean, whenever you think about like a politician, when something comes up that they've done, I don't care who it is, there's always something that somebody can dig up, right? And then what do they always do? Well, you know, I've, I've grown a lot since then, or, you know, at the times have changed, I used to feel that way, I don't anymore, or I have recognized now that some people may have misunderstood that, right? And they, it, whatever. Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus actually goes further and says, no, let's, if you want to discuss whether or not you're righteous by the law of God, here's what we're talking about. Here's what that actually means. And so what he's doing is he's establishing really two things, his righteousness and our sinfulness. And those always go hand in hand. We can't really understand our sinfulness apart from the righteousness of God or else we will live in absolute despair. And we can't understand the righteousness of God without understanding our sinfulness or we'll live in absolute delusion. We have to understand them side by side. And so what Jesus is doing here is illustrating that for us. And really then, throughout the book of Matthew, what Jesus does is he reorients people's perspective. Jesus basically, you know, I mean, there's a lot of teachings from Jesus. There's miracles. There's parables that he tells. And we're going to try and get into those all a little more uh, through the next couple of weeks. But what Jesus is doing here uh, in the Gospel of Matthew is he's interacting with people and he's reorienting their perspective to say, okay, hold on a second. You guys are trying to become righteous through the law. Here's the problem. You can't. You cannot attain righteousness through the law. And else, in, in, later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul's going to write, he's going to say, nobody can attain righteousness through the law. Is that the law's fault? What's the answer? No. The law is completely perfect. The law was given by God. So what's wrong with the law? Nothing. What's wrong then? Why can't human beings attain to the law? What's the problem? Us. The problem is our sinfulness. And so we're going to see Jesus orienting people's perspective throughout the whole book. So in chapter 9, um, Jesus is calling his disciples, and he invites, uh, he calls one of the disciples who would eventually become named Matthew, who actually wrote the book here that we're studying tonight. Matthew was a tax collector, which, you know, we don't like them now, uh, culturally. But specifically in the ancient world, to be a tax collector in Israel meant something. That meant you absolutely were willing to totally walk away from your country. It'd be kind of like, uh, you know, an American official, American official selling nuclear bombs to North Korea. It just would, like, it, it doesn't work, right? You can't do that and really walk around in public. And that's sort of the political stance of the tax collectors. And Jesus calls one of these guys to follow him. And this guy responds to the call of Jesus Christ. And what's he do? He says, hey, I've got other friends who need to hear this message too. So he invites them. He invites Jesus and all of his other friends to the same event. And the religious elite see what's going on. And they say, hey, wait a second. Righteous people, people who are righteous by the law, don't do that kind of thing. And Jesus says, well, if we're going to talk about the law, let's bear in mind this, that the law says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Jesus says, hey, you know what? You've got this idea. You've, you've kind of sculpted the law into what you want. But let's talk about what the law actually says. The Word of God says in the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, uh, I desire compassion, not sacrifice. Those are the words of the Lord. And so he says, I'm sorry. No. The Lord desires the heart of someone. 
much more than he desires the actions of someone. He wants the actions to follow as a natural response, but the actions will never save anybody because you can never be perfect enough by your actions. So the Lord wants somebody's heart. So he deals with the religious elite. He goes on <clears throat> in chapter 11, and he deals with his cousin, John the Baptist. Now, most of us are a little bit aware of John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes shortly before Jesus' ministry gets started, and he starts prophesying and declaring to the people, hey, the Messiah is coming. Your Savior is coming. And then Jesus comes. John baptizes him. The Spirit of God comes upon Jesus. Then John gets arrested later on for being unpopular because he's telling the truth. And People in power don't like when people tell the truth. But John gets arrested and he's listening to, he's hearing rumors about Jesus going around and, and healing people and John starts to struggle because he had this expectation that Jesus was going to come and be this political savior and Jesus isn't living up to his expectations. And so John sends his friends to Jesus and says, hey, are you sure you're the Messiah? Because basically, you're really not acting like it. And Jesus says, go and tell John this. Chapter 11, verse 5. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now, that phrase, the poor have the gospel preached to them, is in all caps in my Bible. It's a quotation from the Old Testament. Jesus says, hey, you're expecting some sort of political savior, but, you go tell, but John needs to know this. The poor having the gospel preached to them. That's the fulfillment of what the Messiah is going to do. He's saying, I might not be living up to your expectations of a political savior, but what needs to change right now? Is it your expectations or my reality? It's your expectations. And he goes on then in verse 11, as, as John's messengers head on home to go talk to John, Jesus starts talking to the crowd about John. And in verse 11, he says, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's a pretty high compliment <clears throat> to have Jesus Christ say, you are the greatest person ever born to a woman, which uh, incidentally encompasses everybody, right? Jesus was so unpopular in terms of gender binaries, but whatever. He says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, this is always interesting to me because Jesus, he's, he's talking to the crowd. He says, you've got to understand, John the Baptist is the greatest single human being who ever lived, uh, short of Jesus Christ. But the person who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. What is he saying? Well, here's what he's saying. He's saying, John kept the law more fully than any human being. John came closer to righteousness. John was truly the greatest man born among women. He is the most righteous man by his actions, but you know what? The person who is least in the kingdom of heaven, the worst Christian ever who has accepted Jesus' offer of salvation is greater than John the Baptist. And what's the point? The point is we're not called to live by the Old Testament law because why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment. We don't enter righteousness by the law of God, we enter righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, it doesn't matter who you are, right? You've got to understand, if you have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you have received the fact that Jesus came to earth, he died for your sins, he rose again to demonstrate his power and to fill you with that power, then you can stand before God in heaven with all of the righteousness 
of Jesus Christ. All of it. You can be clothed in all of the righteousness and all of the goodness of Jesus Christ with none of your sin, none of your wickedness, because it's all been taken away. And so, what he's, he's orienting perspective. He's saying, hey, we got to remember. Let's, let's remember who I am and who you are. Right? You are a sinner. You're in desperate need of being saved. But guess what? Nobody can be saved on their own. Nobody can live up to the true standards that God holds them to. So there's got to be another way. Right? It's almost, uh, think of it like, you know, a city with an impossibly high wall. And, and everybody spends thousands of years trying to climb over this wall. And then one man comes along, climbs the wall, climbs down the inside, and blows a hole in the bottom of the wall. And says, okay, whoever wants to, come on in. Here's the hole. Right? And, and some people come, and some people say, that is so narrow-minded to say there's only one hole to get into that city. There's only one hole? Are you, are you kidding me? What if I don't want that hole? And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, by my righteousness, by my power, I'm demonstrating that I am opening the door for anybody who wants to come in. Okay? So, under, so he's, what is, he's, just, he's orienting the people's perspective because they need to understand who the Lord is and who they are. He goes on uh, in a couple other spots in chapter... I wrote down several references because I wasn't sure how much time I'd have. So um, I'm not like just flipping through guessing, right? Um, in chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 16, this is one of the, I think, the most interesting interactions that Jesus ever had with somebody. It says, Someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, What are you asking? Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who's good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And then he said to him, which ones? So somebody comes to Jesus and he says, hey, what do I have to do to enter eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you keep the law, right? If you can keep the law, if you can keep all the law, you'll be righteous. And he says, well, which ones? Right? Because, because already, right, what's he doing? He's, he's, we got to get in on a curve, right? Well, well, like, which ones, right? Like, could you narrow it down to, like, top three or something, Right? And Jesus says, well, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? So this guy has the audacity to tell Jesus, look, I've done all of that, but I still feel like I'm a little short. What, what, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard the statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Now, some people over the years have tried to turn this into a parable that says, if you want to serve the Lord, you need to sell all of your money. Sell all of your stuff and give away all your money. <clears throat> That's not what this is. That's not what this is. What is this? This is Jesus reorienting someone's perspective. This guy comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, well, what you need to do is be perfect. And he says, yeah, I've got that down. What else do I need to do? And so what Jesus is, is doing here is he's saying, really, here's your problem. You're focused on what you want to do, and I'm more interested in who you need to be. And you are so tied up in your riches. You're so tied up in thinking that you can accomplish anything with enough money 
or enough time or enough persistence. I mean, this guy is young, he's rich, and it says he's a ruler. He's got it all. Jesus says, you're obsessed with this idea that you can do in order to get into the kingdom of heaven. That's not it. You're going to have to be. Right? So in this guy's case specifically, yes, he did need to sell everything he had. He needed to let go of his attempts at earning righteousness through the law. And once he, Jesus is saying, once you can let go of that, you're going to be ready to accept what I'm going to say. But until you can let go of that, you're not going to be ready to accept. And so what's he doing? He's orienting his perspective. He's showing them who Jesus is and who he is. And so and then as the book, sort of moving through the book, uh, he then goes on and gives more teachings. He gives in chapter 24 and 25 a sermon on the end times, which uh, is completely consistent with how the book of Revelation lays things out. Um, and then, you know, we get into the Last Supper, we get into the crucifixion, and what do we see? We, say, we see Jesus coming in as the fulfillment of the law. Now, interestingly, Jesus fulfilled a ton of prophecies when he came to earth, okay? He also fulfilled a ton of symbolism. And these aren't necessarily direct, uh, you know, these aren't a direct word prophecy, like when he says, you know, Bethlehem is going to be the birthplace of the Messiah. That's a prophecy. But there's other symbols and types throughout the Old Testament, throughout the law that we see. And as we look at Jesus' life, we realize, oh, he wasn't just fulfilling prophecies. He was actually fulfilling symbolism and fulfilling types. And truth be told, I am sure there are way more of those that he fulfilled that we just have no idea about. And we'll find out someday. But uh, specifically, the Jewish people had to sacrifice. They had a, that whole sacrificial system. But specifically, once a year, they had to sacrifice what they called the Passover lamb to commemorate the Lord delivering them out of Egypt. And they would sacrifice the lamb. They'd actually have to walk through its blood uh, and it had been at the doorway of their house. And, and what Jesus does in the crucifixion is he becomes a type of the Passover lamb. Because Jesus gets killed by the political leaders, okay? And, but he gets killed on Passover. And, and we can't go into it, but there's a ton of symbolism in Passover. And Jesus comes in and just starts like checking off the symbols one at a time. The, the Passover lamb that they were going to sacrifice every year had to be in the temple area so it could be inspected for a week before they sacrificed it. Well, Jesus was in the temple area for a week. It had to be without spot or blemish. Jesus was without spot or blemish, either physically or spiritually. It had to be, uh, you know, pure. And Jesus, by his righteousness, is really the fullest sense of purity. It had to be even, you know, had to be a young male. Jesus was a young male. And, and he's, he's becoming sort of the symbolism. And even, you know, throughout the scriptures, Egypt is a type of our sinful past. And with the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt into the land of promise. And, and Jesus, by his sacrifice, lets us come out of our sinfulness, or in a sense, our Egypt and into all the promise that he's offering us. And so we get all these symbolism, but what do we have in its sort of summary is we have Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets. Jesus establishing, okay, I have demonstrated that I 
have lived fully to the fullest extent of the law. I am perfectly righteous. He's not making some audacious claim. He's not spouting off. He's saying, no, I am the righteous one. And now I've fulfilled the entire legal system of the Old Testament. I fulfilled the entire sacrificial system. I fulfilled everything that the Old Testament spoke of. And so now he says it specifically in... Uh, he then goes on and basically says, here's where we go from here. Right? You attain righteousness, what? Through receiving Jesus' offer of salvation. You say, Lord, I want to I walk with you. I want to fellowship with you. I want to surrender my life to you. Let you take away my sins and make me righteous. And he does that. And so and at that point, it doesn't matter how lame or rich or poor or, or smart or stupid or whatever else you are. It doesn't matter who you are. You are great in the kingdom of heaven because you have at that moment been totally covered with the righteousness of God. So Jesus dies, but he doesn't stay dead. What's he do? He rises from the dead because the Spirit of God raised him to life. And in the same way, we believe that the Spirit of God, Jesus told us, is now dwelling in us and it's raising us to life. It's giving us spiritual life now. It's gonna, he's going to grant us eternal life in heaven, but he's empowering us now as a foreshadowing of what's to come. But the end of the book, Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. Jesus came up to them and spoke to them, saying, this is Jesus coming to his disciples after he's risen from the dead. And he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I've demonstrated by my righteousness, he's saying, that I have all the power and all the authority in heaven and on earth. That's a lot of power, by the way. That's an awful lot of power. Uh, so however instable, unstable, unstable, our world is, it doesn't matter. Jesus has all the power. Psalms 2 says, you know, the nations of the earth make their whole plan against the Lord and against his people, and the Lord just laughs. The Lord chuckles and says, isn't that cute? They think they've got a plan. They think they can outsmart me, right? Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Verse 19, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, all right, I have all authority. I have fulfilled the law, and I have now opened the doorway to salvation for every single person who will walk through it. So now here's what you do, right? I did all, I did all the heavy lifting. Now here's all you got to do. Go. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. You go and you make disciples. You don't make, you know, he doesn't say go and be chummy with the world. He doesn't say go and make everybody like you. He says go and make disciples. Go and explain to people the depth of the gospel. Gospel is just a fancy word that means good news. He says you explain to them the depth of the good news that I fulfilled the law and the prophets so you don't have to. I fulfilled the law and the prophets so that you're just standing in my righteousness in the presence of God with all the blessings that come with that. So you go, you make disciples. You help people understand that better. Where? Of all nations. Because this is not some sort of local club religion thing. This isn't a gospel for white people. This isn't a gospel for black people or rich people or poor people. This is a gospel. This is good news for all nations. And you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You teach them 
to observe all that I commanded you. You teach them to do what I taught you. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Right up until forever ends, Jesus will be with us. Hebrews chapter 13 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so Jesus said, hey, all authority has been given to me. So how much does he still have? All. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he's got it all right now. He's going to have it all tomorrow. He said, go and make disciples. His message hasn't changed because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he finishes the Gospel of Matthew by saying, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's still true for us because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so Jesus Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets. Every requirement in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ fulfilled. Not so that you could then be saved by his righteousness and do whatever you want, but so that you could be saved by his righteousness and respond to his righteousness so that you could go and make disciples of all nations. Not so you can go and party with all people, so you can go and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus fulfilled the law. He conquered death by demonstrating that there's a resurrection and that we are therefore not just here for this life, right? You only live forever. And so he came, fulfilled the law, conquered death, and he gave us a job. What are we going to do about it? Right? That's, Matthew sort of leaves it there. He leaves it with a little bit of a cliffhanger, right? Because who's supposed to, what, who, fulfill, who fills the end of the book? Our lives. Right? What happens next? Well, it depends on if we respond. And so Matthew responded. Matthew wound up writing this gospel to help us understand who Jesus Christ is. Right? Not who he was, who he is. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Matthew wound up getting his head chopped off because he believed it that firmly. That he would not walk it back. He wouldn't tone it down. And he had two options. Either you back off or you lose your head. He said, well, what the heck? Take the head, right? And so that's what Matthew did. Matthew responded to it. What are we going to do? Every one of us has to, has to reckon with that question in our own heart. And so we understand the righteousness of God and our sinfulness. We understand Jesus' offer to make us righteous by his blood, by, by his righteousness, what are you going to do about it? It's an open-ended question. And, and, that's, and so we get the privilege and the responsibility of deciding what are we going to do with it. That's Matthew. Next week we're going to find ourselves in the book of Mark. Uh, and we'll probably be looking largely at the miracles of Jesus. We'll see how exactly it pans out. But, uh, but yeah, that's it. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can experience uh, the good news, the gospel. That we can be here looking back on what you've done and recognizing that you are still the same. That you have fulfilled the law and the prophets for us. And so we pray that we would stand in the righteousness of Christ. That we would not seek to make ourselves righteous by our own works or our own actions. But that we would simply respond to your invitation. To your offer of salvation. God, help us to... Uh, to walk closer to you, to, to just hear your word and let it impact our hearts and drive our lives. I pray that you would 
Help us to go and make disciples. Give us a, a boldness with your gospel, God. Give us a, a courageousness that is unearthly. Help us to want to share the joy that we've been given. And so we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.